0: Good morning, it's good to be with you, uh, and uh, it was good uh, this yesterday to have uh, our annual fall, fall festival back. We obviously weren't able to do that previous year due to COVID, and uh, I'll admit, uh, yesterday I was a little worried as the rain started coming right at two o'clock when uh, we uh, were about to start and uh, was worried. I was going around to different leaders and you know, trying to uh, uh, keep perspective. Hey, the, the Lord's in control of the weather. It's all good. Don't let your spirit be down. But uh, unbeknownst to any of us, uh, the people came and came and came and had just a, a wonderful fall fest. I, I, I think I'd uh, be confident to say there was more people from the community than there were you guys. Um, and uh, what I was so encouraged by is just seeing the various gifts on display, uh, seeing people, uh, Terry working that uh, that um, uh, cotton canning machine uh, and uh, working her magic and uh, Mindy painting faces on all sorts of characters and uh, all, you know, going on and then just seeing people serving the food, uh, moving carts around and then those who are praying with individuals, talking, uh, reaching out, and, and really our hope in all those times is to uh, just to show our community, uh, or at least give them a taste, taste of the kingdom of heaven as they come here. Now, uh, I had one individual come up to me and say, hey, uh, was it all right if we had kind of some blood and gore? We didn't realize that, that you know they're, they're kind of a little sensitive to it, and they said, what, what do Christians believe about Halloween? And I didn't get a ton of uh, time to unpack some of that, but, uh, uh, but basically I said, well, we, we're, we're people of the resurrection. Uh, we're more into that than into death, uh, but we're thankful you're here, and, uh, and we're glad that your kids can get some candy. Well, this morning I began waking up my children, and, and typically I say, you know what today is? And, and usually that's, it's Sunday, well, today it's Halloween, and I was like, well, yeah, It is, uh, but it's actually the Lord's Day. Uh, And so how appropriate it is to, uh, as the world celebrates death today, many will. Many will celebrate death and what is evil. I'm not saying don't go trick or treat with your kids. Mine will be doing that. Uh, But we won't be, you know, having knives sticking out of our heads or something like that. Uh, You know, we will. um, But uh, we come here to celebrate the one who conquered death. And really, on October 31st, uh, for most Christians around the world, this is a, a day of real significance um, because it's the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Um, you know, those of us who are really serious, you know, say it's Reformation Day, right? We—it's well, not Halloween; it's Reformation Day, and we dress up like Martin Luther or a monk or something, walking around. Um, which that'd be cool. But in case you don't know about Reformation Day, I didn't know. I had no idea what the Reformation was, let alone who Martin Luther was. Only Martin Luther I knew was Martin Luther King. But in 1517, Martin Luther, who was a German monk, uh, rediscovered the glorious good news of Jesus Christ. And this is it. Namely, that righteousness and forgiveness of sins comes through faith and not on the ground of our works. And it was God's kindness and God's mercy through Martin Luther. There were others, but we remember Martin uh, most significantly. But it's through God's kindness and his mercy that the famine of the absence of God's word being preached came to an end. The Bible was put back into the hands of the people The church services were actually spoken in the language of the day, and the gospel began to multiply as the word of the cross was proclaimed. It was like the days in the Old Testament, if you're familiar with King Josiah, when they were working to repair the temple, and they discover what they had lost, and you know what they had lost? They had lost the word of God, but when they opened it up, they realized, oh no! We are under the judgment of God. And there was a great revival among the people of God as they repented. And so it is true today, my friends. What you need, what the world needs, is the Bible and the message of the Bible. They need the word of the cross preached. For whenever the word is truly proclaimed, that is when revival happens. That is what grants repentance to hard and unpenitent sinners. This is the power of the cross. That's why the Apostle Paul said he's not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, in this gospel, the righteousness of God, righteousness to forgive sins, is revealed from faith to faith. So today, on Reformation Sunday, we're going to preach Christ. We're going to hear the gospel of up, and we've, we've sung already, and it was glorious. I, I love it when Pastor Chris silences the instruments and, and the instruments of your voices come through. It is beautiful. Well, today, as I preach Christ crucified, I want the power of the cross to sink deep into our hearts so that we, on the one hand, may perceive the exceeding sinfulness of our sin but also behold the surpassing redemption accomplished for us in Christ. See, in the cross, Christ was not passive. The cross itself, the act of of his sacrifice, it's not passive. The cross is not neutral. It was actually a powerful event, an effective event, accomplishing something. The cross, Jesus going there to die as a sacrifice for us, actually accomplishes our redemption, my friends. And to accomplish our redemption, it must also accomplish a true judgment for sin. And that's what we see here as we first come to our text. The cross accomplished judgment for sin. Matthew has us here in the middle of the crucifixion. It's between noon and three o'clock. And as Matthew begins to recount the events surrounding the cross, we see that darkness was over all the land for a span of three hours. Now, just think about that. It's from noon to three o'clock. That's the brightest time of the day goes to pitch black. Darkness comes over the land. This isn't a mere eclipse that just kind of happens and you know, whenever we have those we we try and get our fancy goggles made out of cereal boxes and stuff like that and try to look at it and you miss it, right? No, there's no chance that you're going to miss this eclipse. The sun was darkened over the land of Israel. It was as if the whole universe goes into mourning and puts on black. But even more so As the heavens have been darkened, this was beginning to illuminate the spiritual realities that were truly taking place. See, the darkening of the sky represents God's judgment. You may recall the Exodus, if you're familiar with the story of Moses leading out the people of Israel and the ten plagues. What was one of the plagues? Darkness over the land, And similarly, we we think of the prophet Amos, who actually says, On the great and terrible day of the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. That is what's happening here. The great and terrible day of the Lord has begun at the cross of Christ. Judgment day, in a sense, is happening the darkness of God's judgment has come upon Jesus because he is bearing the weight of the sins of the world. And it is this judgment that Christ is enduring that accounts for his cry of desertion where we see him cry out and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's as Isaiah had said. It was the will of the Father to crush him. Jesus is being crushed. He's being put to grief. See, when we think of the cross, we often, our mind goes to the physical human suffering, and, there, and there's certainly merit to that. We think of the beatings that Jesus endured, the scourging and all that takes place. We think of the mocking. We think of the piercing of his hands and his feet. We think of all the agonizing elements of the crucifixion. And though this suffering was certainly of the cruelest sort, it was merely an outward expression of the deep spiritual realities that are going on inside of him. Jesus is truly the object of God's holy hatred and wrath. That is what is going on. Jesus has literally become a curse as he's hung on a tree so that we may be redeemed from the curse. And it's in this way that we are to understand this forsaking that Jesus is experiencing. Jesus is being abandoned in this sense that he is not experiencing the presence of God's love. He's only experiencing the presence of God's hate and God's wrath and God's judgment. Why have you forsaken me? One of the deepest pains you can ever feel is the absence of love from one that you thought loved you, right? Maybe you've experienced that pain before, maybe the pain of an absent parent, maybe the hurt of a faithless spouse, a wayward child who's turned their back on you, or, or a dear friend who's betrayed you. These words or these wounds, excuse me, are agony, aren't they? To feel that absence of love that you you long for, that you, you thought you once had are gone. rips your heart out. Well, for Christ, since he was born and growing in the wisdom and stature uh, uh, in favor with God, he walked in obedience to him. He, He had heard the heavenly voice at his baptism, this is my beloved son. What does that mean? You're my son and I love you. Those are the words that he has heard. Those are the words that he's entrusted to himself. Those are the words that have carried him in obedience to the Father's will his whole life for for 33 years. But here, at the cross, he cries out to his Father. You know what he hears? Nothing. For the first time, he hears nothing. I think of the beginning of Proverbs, Lady Wisdom says, Seek wisdom. I'm out in the streets. I'm everywhere. Seek me, and, and you'll find blessing. But if you reject me on the day of calamity, you will cry out, and I will not answer you. Jesus experiences the absence of the voice of the Father as if he was a fool. He's experienced it as if he has never listened to the Father, as if he had no relationship with Him, as he undergoes the judgment. Unlike it is baptism, there's no thunder, there's no heavenly voice, just the cries of the Son, and in the backdrop, the voices of the mockers. That's what we see here, as Jesus is crying out. The crowd and the soldiers, those who are there, they see his pitiful cries and they see, no one's coming to rescue you. That's what they're getting at, right? That's what they're actually doing. This is, this is jeering. This is mocking. This man's calling out to Elijah. And, and maybe when uh, he's speaking here in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, Alemah, Sabachthani, they're, they're hearing that and, and, and they think, well, maybe he's, maybe they, they picked up and they just heard Elijah. We don't know. One of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed. another said, "No, no, 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 no! Let's see if Elijah comes and saves him." In the sense of his father is abandoning him. Now he's he's going to the next best thing. See, so it was often thought that since Elijah, if you're familiar with the prophet Elijah, he was carried up in a whirlwind of fire. He didn't die that he would somehow come and save the righteous and spare them from suffering. There was kind of a a tradition among Jews at that time. And so they're using this as somewhat of a a mocking opportunity. Yet once the scriptures had been fulfilled through the offering of sour wine, we've seen that earlier in Psalm 22, we see here that, that Christ cries out again with a loud voice and then yields up his own spirit. There's a particular emphasis to this. There's a a sense in which death is still yet under his control. He yields up his spirit. As he says elsewhere, I lay down my life, and no one takes it from me. It's not merely that Jesus is dying, but he's willingly dying, and he's willingly undergoing now the wages of sin, though he himself had committed no sin. By yielding his life, he now tastes death. He drinks the cup of death. Though the Father is silent here as he crushes the Son on the cross for our sin, once the work is finished, the Father would remain silent no longer. As as we are now going to see, the curtain is torn in two. And in doing so, the father declares that the death of his son was actually effective in accomplished something. It was effective in accomplishing our access to God. The cross accomplished access to God. As Christ yields up his spirit, look what happens. And behold, the curtain of the temple, verse 51, was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook. There's an earthquake, and, and, and so much of it's shaking that the rocks were split in two. Even though there's an earthquake here and rocks are splitting, uh, there is significance here. But where I want to draw your attention to is the, of, of greatest importance is the fact that on the cross, when Jesus dies, at that moment, the veil of the curtain in the temple is torn, not from bottom to top, as if a, a human could have done that, no, it was from top to bottom. Now we're 2,000 years removed from temples, right? We're 2,000 years removed from the temple in Jerusalem. It's been destroyed in AD 70, and and it's not there. Nor do we live in a pagan culture which is centered around the imperial cult of some sort. We're, we don't come and, and, and gather our whole society around a temple and to a God whom we must appease through sacrifice. We've, in much sense, have been Christianized in seeing that that is not necessary from this text. So the full impact of what is going on may escape some of us. We may not realize the full significance of what has actually occurred. See, in temple, in the temple in Jerusalem, this was the place that, that God dwelt. This is the place where God's presence dwelt and where he would meet with his people. But the whole temple itself communicated the idea that we are separated from God and he's holy and we are not. If you know anything about the temple, uh, outside the walls was deemed the the court of the Gentiles. You couldn't even go in. If you weren't a Jew, you couldn't enter into the temple courts. You had to just stand outside. If you were a woman, there was a court for for women. And then there was the the inner court where you'd enter the doors. And this is where the more routine sacrifices would be made by the priests, day after day after day after day. Only the priests could enter there and offer up sacrifice for sin. And then there was the Holy of Holies, where you would go through the veil. And only one priest could go through there, that was the chief priest, and only one time of year, which he would, on the Day of Atonement, he would offer a lamb, a spotless lamb, for the sins of the whole nation. The veil not only separated everyone finally from the presence of God, but even if perhaps you might be out in the court, even if perhaps you could catch a glimpse, you would never be able to see in there, let alone go in there. But by ripping the veil, God announces that a permanent mediator has entered, a permanent sacrifice has been given. And now I have opened up access to everyone who wishes to come in. As the writer of Hebrews states, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Christ is that perfect, spotless lamb who was sacrificed on the hill of Calvary, and the curtain is torn because... There's only needed one sacrifice for sins in Jesus, no more. Several years ago, many of you uh, renovated a portion of my basement to uh, build for me a little home study, and I'm greatly appreciative of. Uh, I often say that's Chase's happy place, Uh, I can go there, and uh, I can go be with my books, uh, and I can go and... Be, commune with the Lord, pray, silence. Even even the cell phone signal is a, is a little dim and doesn't always come through because it's in the basement. And if you were to come to my house, uh, one, you'd have to enter my house to get there. And, uh, and then you'd have to know where the basement door is. You go down the basement. And when you come down the basement, you'd have to slide the sliding door. And even when you, you might see my books, but you won't see me yet because I'm tucked around the corner in a little nook. I'm literally at the farthest place I can get in the house, okay? But at 345, when my kids come home, particularly now my boys, they drop their stuff. I can hear their footsteps. The basement door opens, and before they can make it down the steps, Dad, 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 they come in. They fling that door right open. They they just come right in as if I'm not hidden at all, as if they have full access because they do. And what the ripping of the veil demonstrates for us is that there are no barriers any longer for those in Christ. We have been adopted as children of God. We get to fling the door open and enter in as if there were no barrier at all. That's what Christ has done. He's truly accomplished access to the Father. Maybe you feel as if you are far from God. And you're, you think, man, today I need to get myself right. I am here at church today. I went to the fall festival, talked to some sweet people. I'm going to get myself right because I've been far from God. And you think that is how you're going to get close. But let me tell you the good news. This is the great news of Christianity. You are not made acceptable in God's sight by anything that you have done or will do. You are only made acceptable Because of the acceptable sacrifice that Christ has made, do you trust it? Do you trust Him? If you trust Him and you give your life to Him, you have full access to the Father on your best days, and guess what, even on your worst. And for those of us who have been in Christ, guess what? The Father doesn't love you any more today than the first day you came to know Him. Nor does he love you any less. Because his love for you is in Christ and the sacrifice that was made. Because of what Christ has done on the cross, we have full access to the Father. He has slung the doors open that we may boldly enter his presence. But Christ not only opened up the access to the Father, but he also, guess what? He unlocked the prison gates of death. He unlocked the prison gates of death. He accomplished resurrection life for us. Now, if we go on to verse 52, we find out at Christ's death, not only did the earth shake, not only did the rocks split, but there was such an earthquake that also, verse 52, the tombs were also opened. What? God declares through the death of his son, death has been defeated. It's as if the seal of death is literally rolled away as the cross takes place, as Christ yields up his life. Now, this passage here in verse 52 and 53 is is rather fascinating. It's the only place in the Gospels that we hear this account of the tombs also opening. And and there's a, a bit of mystery here. What is going on? Well, it seems that as the earth shook, the rocks split, the veil was torn in two, that literally, and now think about tombs, they don't have graveyards like ours buried in the ground. No, you were buried in rock tombs, as Jesus will, and we'll see next week. And there's tombs with, with stones rolled over them. Well, as the earth shook, the stones rolled out. And maybe if you could see some of these, these graves, you'd just see, boom, 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 like the doors just open, locks just on. Un- Doing the doors. I don't know what it would have been like. But all of a sudden, all these sealed tombs are now opened once Jesus yields his life. And then it seems, now notice, we see this sense in which, and and the saints, and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Here's what I think Matthew's trying to say he wants to get the significance of the power of the resurrection before the resurrection happens. So he wants to let you know, hey, the tombs are opened, but I think what happened is is that the bodies don't rise out of the tombs until Jesus is raised. So that's what he's getting at, and then they enter the city. But at this point, the tombs open, okay? It's like what's primed the pump, okay? The tombs are open, death is being conquered, Day three, they're going to rise with Jesus and enter the holy city and appear to many. Now, we don't know who these saints are. They're, they're clearly Old Testament believers, pre-cross, faithful saints who have died in the Lord. We don't know what kind of bodies they possess. We don't even know what happens to them when they're gone. Do, do they just go to heaven or do they go back to the grave? We, we don't know. But the point that I think Matthew wants us to get here is at the cross, resurrection life was accomplished. Okay, Death was defeated for all his people. This account actually vividly uh, um, describes what we profess in the Apostles' Creed. You know that weird saying, and he descended to the dead? It's not merely that he died. No, Jesus goes to the realm of the dead, and as the psalmist declares, he leads a host of captives free, and we're literally seeing that happen. That's the effect of the cross. It's not neutral. It accomplished resurrection for these saints and for all who are in Christ. Christ fully experiences death by even going to the realm of the dead. And so we see here that Jesus does have, in fact, what he tells John in Revelation 20 or Revelation chapter 1, I have conquered and I have the keys of death in Hades. Why? Because he unlocks the prison gates. He went down there and he defeated death on the cross. So I hope you begin to see clearly the cross is not some passive, neutral event as if he died and there's just all these things just waiting to happen. No, they're happening. They're happening. Judgment truly happened. Access to God truly happened. Resurrection power is happening. But also we're going to see regeneration for faith happens. See, apart from the cross, And our sins, we we can't have them atoned for. We cannot come to God. We're we're left in darkness. We're left in the hardness of our hearts. But with the death of Christ comes grace which is is supplied, which breaks the stony hearts. Just as the rocks were split, we're going to see the rock of a man's heart is split because of the cross see now Christ's death affects the heart of the Roman soldiers. Matthew says in verse 51 when the centurion and those who were with him kept watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place they were filled with awe and now they say truly this is the son of the son of God. What in the world just happened? I mean, it's not like he's just had a Bible study going on and, and someone says, hey, let me share with you the Roman road. Let me, let me open up the gospel to you. No, he's literally had a front row seat to the gospel and it impacted his life. Just a moment ago, verse 36, what were they doing? They sat down and kept watch over him there. They crucified the man and they sat down to watch him die. These are the same soldiers who are part of the beatings, the scourgings, the mockings, the nailing, the placing of the sign in mockery. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. They were likely the ones to bring the reed of the, of the sour wine to speed up his death. We're tired of being here. And others said, no, 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 no. Let's see if, if Elijah comes and save them. They're literally all a part of this mocking. There is no sign of a, of a pulse in their heart. But the moment Jesus dies and the earthquake and the tombs open, guess what? Their hearts open. There's a change, a radical nature. And this is what the gospel does: it's the power of God unto salvation. This is why Paul likens his preaching to the Galatians. He says that Christ was proclaimed and publicly crucified before your eyes, and you received the Spirit, changed you. The cross does that. There's a radical work going on here. Once the work of the cross is finished, this soldier beholds Christ. It looks, looks not just the centurion, but the whole group. And they see him for who he truly is. They see him as truly the son of God. At one moment, these soldiers are blind, hard-hearted, and then Christ dies. And their hearts are changed in a moment. Changed in a moment. What I want you to see is the work of Christ actually accomplishes redemption actually does something. It's not neutral. It's not passive. It's not just waiting there. No, it's effective. This isn't a potential atonement, but an actual one. When the cross of Christ is lifted up, he will draw people to himself. And all those whom he draws, he promises that he will raise those same people up from the dead. That's what the cross accomplishes. So God is able to save his people and redeem them. I want you to see this, 1 Corinthians. The gospels often describe what happens. We go to the epistles and they tell us what happens. Epistles give us an under the hood. Hey, hey, let me understand, let me interpret these events for you. And in 1 Corinthians chapter one, Paul is talking about the power of the cross Corinthians have found power in everything else, but they do not see where the real power lies, and it is in the preaching of the cross. And Paul says to them, he says, for the word of the cross, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1, the word of the cross, the message of crucifixion, what you're hearing right now, the word of the cross, guess what? It's folly to those who are perishing. There's a state. Those who are perishing, those who are damned, it's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God, okay? We got two categories. Well, Paul wants us to see, jump down in verse 26. He wants us to consider the power that has occurred in your life. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. In other words, you're not the movers and the shakers. TMZ's not gonna write an article about you, okay? You're not not on entertainment tonight. You're not not gonna be seen as the most influential people in the world. You're probably not gonna make the Sexiest Man Alive awards. None of that's gonna happen, all right? You're not going to be on any cover of any magazine. You're the unimportant in the world. It's all according to God's plan. But God chose, God elected, that's that word. God chose what is foolish, you. You and me. To shame the wise. Here he goes again. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? Why, why was God choosing to save weak people like you and me? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. No one can say it was me. No one can say I saved myself. Notice verse thirty. And because of him, you are in Christ. You see it? Why are you in Christ? Because of him. What did he do? He chose you. That's why. That's why you're in Christ. Paul's giving you a behind-the-scenes look. And so when the preaching of the cross came to you, you believed. It was the power of God to salvation. And because of him, verse 30, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Do you see that? This is all God's grace. And Christ came. The cross came. And he accomplished all this for you. He did it. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is the second letter. Paul's got to keep hitting this point to them because they keep thinking power is out there. It's the world's power. We need some of it. And he said, actually, no, the power is in the word of Christ. And now he comes at it from the other angle. Why do some people not believe then? And he tells you. And he also tells you why you do. What, what's the difference? What occurred in your life that doesn't occur in those who are perishing? He says, beginning in verse 3, 2 Corinthians 4, it's up on the screen. And even if our gospel is veiled, what a term. Hmm. For some, the veil remains. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. There's that category again. What's going on inside their heart? What, why won't they believe? Why can't they see? In their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. I want you to see that the light of the glory of Christ, the image of God, that light, if it shined in your heart, you're like the soldier. <laughs> Truly, that's the Son of God. That's what happens. When that light is shined, you believe. Just like the soldier, guess what? Verse five, so why do we preach Christ? Well, what we proclaim is not ourselves. <laughs> for Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light, let light shine out of darkness. Remember that in Genesis one? Let there be light. God speaks, there's darkness. Boom, the lights come on. What has he done in your life? He has shown in your hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What's the difference between you who believe and those who don't? The lights went on. Lights went on. That's what happened with this soldier and his crew. The lights went on. And how did the lights come on? Christ was literally proclaimed in front of them. And they believed. They believed. Just like God spoke the world into being, Out of nothing came everything. So God speaks through the cross to shine the light of the knowledge of his Son into our hearts so that we can believe. This is what is meant when he says, by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this, this package deal, is not of yourself, but is the gift of God. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Where's that gift come from, It was purchased, it happened, it was lifted up when Christ yielded his life on the cross. The power of the cross came into your life. And so today, my friends, some of you are here for the first time. The cross of Christ has been lifted up before your eyes. For your eyes, Christ has been publicly crucified. Can you see that he's truly the Son of God, worthy of your praise? And if you see, then what keeps you from plunging beneath that flood, the fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, where sinners, guess what, lose all their guilty stains? Come to Christ today, my friend. Some of you children, some of you are teenagers by now, you've heard the gospel. Come to Christ today. Come today, repent of your sins, trust in this work on the cross and demonstrate it. Say, I want to follow Jesus. I'm going to be baptized into Jesus' name. And guess what? You will receive the benefits of the cross. Forgiveness of sins, adoption as a child brought into the kingdom of God. If you hear his voice today, do not delay. Do not harden your hearts. Let's pray. O God of unsearchable greatness, for you we are nothing. Nothing but vanity, iniquity. Apart from you, we are perishing. Sin has forfeited your favor, stripped us of your image, banished us from your presence, exposed us to the curse of your law. We cannot deliver ourselves. We are in despair. But a resource is found in you. For without my desire or want, you have devised an everlasting, eternal plan, honorable to your perfections, one so marvelous that even angels long to peer in and look. And the word which announces all the glory of this goodness that is near to us today. It invites us, it calls us. Oh, Lord, I pray that we, convinced and self-despairing sinners, we would find in Jesus the power unto salvation. We would see his death as the center of all relief, the source of all gospel blessing. Help us return to the cross to be crucified to the world and through it find deep humiliation and the cross that we would find motives for patience and self-denial, the grace for active mercy, faith to grasp eternal life, hope to lift up our heads and love to bind us to Christ who died and rose for us. May his shed blood make us more thankful for your mercies more humble under your correction, more zealous in your service, more watchful against temptation, more content in our circumstances, and more useful to others. Lord, on the cross, you accomplished our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. Thank you for the cross. And let us find our boast only in Jesus. And so we pray these things in his name. Amen.